Yo, a big hello from Nairobi and a warm, warm welcome to another Equals, folks. This is Nabil. Hope you're well out there. Hi, everyone. This is Nadia from Washington, D.C. Nabil, great to be back. We haven't caught up for a while. How's the homeschooling going? It is great to have you back, Nadia. And I know you always have to ask about how my homeschooling is going. So if, <laughs> ugh, if, if by homeschooling you mean, you know, letting your kids be happy, be free, letting them roam around, letting them climb up trees then I think homeschooling is going fantastic. And I think I make an amazing homeschooling teacher. Well, that's my that's how I feel anyway. But how about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you are the best of the best teacher, Nabil. Absolutely. That means a lot to me. I, I do need that validation from you, Nadia. <laughs> no, on our side, things are going well. We've found a really nice balance. You know, I work in the mornings and at night, and Kyle works in the afternoons and at night, and, and the kids are only appearing on our Zoom meetings, you know, every every couple of hours or so. So I mean, <laughs> overall going really well. And we're enjoying the time as a family, I have to say. I don't even know if I can go back to the office at this stage. I'm getting used to this. I can totally relate. It's so nice just seeing, being able to see your kids through the day. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's get down to, to this podcast. So a reminder for our listeners out there that we're focusing um, these few episodes in sort of a mini series looking at coronavirus and inequality. Um, and we've got a very exciting guest for you. Why don't you introduce him, Nabil? Yeah, we really do. So we have a world-leading, distinguished human rights lawyer today, someone who's just finished his term as a UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, someone you many of you probably heard of, who, someone who makes governments actually just quite quake in their boots every time he turns up in one of their countries to see what's really happening on the ground. I am, of course, talking about the very brilliant Professor Philip Alston. Fantastic to have him on the podcast today. Absolutely. And I have to say, I'm such a huge fan of him. And I, I really got to see him up close in action when he was um, shedding light and sort of doing, actually being an advocate alongside civil society on the World Bank when they were reviewing their environmental and social safeguard policies. Um, several years ago, he was right out there um, pushing hard on the importance of bringing human rights explicitly into their policies. And, and there was such large pushback. Um, unfortunately, we didn't really succeed in the end. But I mean, he was a force to be reckoned with. Um, and then on the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, he, he's also done some incredible work looking at austerity and human rights. So I'm I'm really a fan. Yeah, he's, he's, he's brilliant, isn't he? He's fearless. He's a deep thinker. I had a similar experience working with him to show actually why the fight for tax justice and the fight for tax reform is so deeply rooted in the fight for human rights. And I just saw how this, he's this very deep and powerful thinker. But Nadia, I, I, I sorry to drop you in this a little bit, but I do remember a conversation from many pizzas ago when you mentioned how you would love to be a UN special rapporteur <laughs> one day. It's, I mean, it's, it's your dream job, isn't it? Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, this particular rapporteur position, I've got to say, it's in some ways, don't you think? It's like the best of multilateralism with full independence, exposing the harsh truths out there, linking economics with social justice, giving voice to the marginalized. I mean, it it's an amazing thing to be able to do, right? Nadia, that sounds like a pretty definitive yes to me, quite frankly. <laughs> Okay. No, I mean, a dream might be the best way to describe it, yeah, rather than a career objective. Anyway, anyway, let's get to the interview, man. Yeah, I think we should. Professor Alston, or if I can call you Philip, 
it's uh, it's a real great honor to have you on Equals, and it's been a great honor working with you over the years. You've you've inspired us. You've given us courage. Let me ask, as 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 these lockdowns ensue, how are you keeping? Oh, all too well, thanks, Nabil. Um, like most of the members of the elite, I'm uh, <laughs> relatively sheltered. Oh, Philip, I can totally relate. I mean, rarely have I felt privilege as much as I do now. We've also been reflecting on our, our own situations here and just seeing the differences um, in the world. It's just immense. And I thought, you know, it would be it's interesting to, to put that in the perspective of this interview and um, because this podcast is on inequality um, and it's a mini series that we're doing right now on coronavirus. So we thought we'd start by asking you, you know, what, what do you think this pandemic means for the gap between rich and poor? And how do you see the interplay between inequality and the pandemic? Well, I think the, uh, the pandemic has really exposed to the full glare of, uh, of, of daylight uh, the extent of inequalities. We've seen too much about it being the great leveler uh, and so on. But in reality, it's nothing of the sort. The, uh, those who are on low incomes are much more vulnerable to infection. They're on the front lines as essential workers. They have access to less care and worse care. They can't shelter in place in the same way as the rest of us can. And they don't have the capacity to take the economic hit. So it's really been a a dramatic difference in terms of the way that the well-off and the not so well-off have been affected by the pandemic. And do you think that we are heading into a more or a less unequal world post-pandemic? Uh, I'm very fearful. I suspect that we're going to see a a second dramatic round of austerity following this. Uh, I think there are going to be new reasons. I think there's going to be more privatization. I don't think governments are going to step up to the plate and learn the lessons that many of us would like to think they were learning about the importance of public facilities, better health systems, and so on. Uh, and I suspect that uh, instead, economic forces are going to conspire to make sure that public spending is decreased even further and that the inequality that plagues us now uh, will, if anything, be exacerbated. You, you really do bring into sharp focus there, uh, Philip, policies and policies that governments have taken and that they will be taken. I'm interested to just explore this relationship between inequality and ideology i saw that you know one of the one of the things that you said just before finishing your term as special rapporteur the un special rapporteur on extreme poverty and human rights you said that the policies of many states reflect a social darwinism philosophy could you dig deeper into that a little bit for us i'm really interested to find out what that means i think the basics are that the elites running the country are absolutely indispensable and must be protected at all costs along with the business interests whereas the workers and those who are vulnerable are dispensable we have to Uh, balance uh, humanity on one side with the economy on the other. Uh, And that means that we can impose uh, dramatic lockdowns, which don't really affect the wealthy. They have their supplies, their stocks, their ways of surviving. Uh, If you have nothing, then being locked down can be uh, close to a death sentence. Many of the support packages that have been devised are 
essentially looking after business interests with a little bit of trickle down, but they're not being devised in such a way either to provide enduring support for the least well off or to change the basic underlying structural inequalities. And a lot of the reopening debates, I think, are rather stunning because you've got governors in states in the US essentially saying, well, I'm fine in the state house, but I think you workers have to really get out there and take more risks. And we're not going to be providing as high a level of protection for you as we possibly can. Good luck out there. Philip, what's what's really clear, and, and I find this, you know, through through reading your works and listening to you now, is that you do have a what is really a unique vantage point, right? So, you know, one of the things that we found most interesting over the years were these country visits that you did from the US to Ghana to Chile. And I, we're interested to know how they inform your understanding of this crisis. But I mean, what are your lasting memories as well from those visits? I think going to places like the uh, Lao PDR uh, to Malaysia, as well as to the United Kingdom, the United States, Saudi Arabia, China, places like that, obviously uh, moving around on the ground, speaking to people who are experiencing poverty and really living with it. Uh, gives you a lot of insights. I think much of it, of course, is the dramatic contrast between the official discourse that you hear and what you actually see on the ground. I remember going to Laos where there'd been a dam break uh, and thousands of people displaced, 70 people also killed. The government's uh, version of the story was so radically different from what I actually saw in speaking to the people. But it's not all that different when I looked at universal credit in the United Kingdom, uh, meeting with Esther McVeigh, the then Secretary of State, assuring me that everything was great, that the scenes from the movie I, Daniel Blake, which really uh, convey very well the horrors of the way in which universal credit has been implemented. Her view was, this is nonsense, you shouldn't uh, listen to that. But you really do get a, a very different uh, picture. Uh, I think I learned the importance of listening. I learned how rarely most people who are experiencing poverty feel that they are listened to. It's not the sort of surveys and opinion polls and other things that scholars and international organizations like to uh, spend so much time on. Uh, it's actually sitting in a village, sitting in a town hall and listening to people. And that in itself has a, a huge therapeutic effect, which I think is, uh, is very different. And, you know, among all these stories, what surprised you the most? Well, uh, lots of things. It's all very complex. First of all, um, I think uh, there's a, a real uh, vindication, if that's the right word, of the role that stigma and discrimination play. So there are ethnic minorities from indigenous peoples in Chile, through the Roma in Romania, through a range of other groups, the Roma in Spain who are really deeply discriminated against, but you have the majority in the population just assuming that these people are wasters and losers and are entirely responsible for their own plight. That's quite notable, I think. Um, 
On the other hand, there is a lot of resilience, which is very reassuring. So meeting with housing groups in Barcelona, which has spread, I think, nationwide, where uh, instead of getting experts in, they get a bunch of people together who are all experiencing housing problems and they listen to success stories. Uh, you know, I was about to be thrown out of my house. This is how I dealt with it. Mm -hmm. I can't pay my mortgage. This is how I managed to negotiate some sort of settlement with the bank or the landlord. Mm -hmm. That sort of uh, self-help uh, is very impressive. And it applies also in a lot of developing countries where you've got amazing groups doing work. But of course, they've also got to deal with the challenges of repression, which is another major factor in many of the countries that I visited. Yeah, absolutely. And Philip, let me just let's just dig deeper there, because it's interesting that you, you come at this from as an, you know, as somebody who was appointed by the United Nations. This is an organization that's put in place. It's founded by governments. And yet, at the same time, you were so able to so consistently call out injustice for what it is. I, I've seen you being described as biased, as politically motivated, and these are all criticisms you'll be familiar with. Did you ever feel the pressure to dial down what you were saying? Uh, there's a lot of pressure to dial it down, but it takes many different forms. First of all, the position of a special rapporteur is a very odd one in the sense that you look uh, for all intents and purposes like a UN official, but the reality is that you are not. You are an independent mm -hmm. expert and you have that capacity to speak independently. I don't think it's always the spirit in which special rapporteurs operate, but it's very important. Uh, I got a lot of pressure. One of the most ironic things was the United Nations itself when I did a report on UN responsibility for taking cholera to Haiti. There was immense pushback uh, from within the UN. You shouldn't be studying this. It's nothing to do with your mandate. The issue has been decided. It's purely legal. There's nothing that can be done. And in any event, your draft report is much too strong. Please change lots of it. When I visited China, I had a whole page on the ways in which the government had sought to intimidate people meeting with me, the way they had surveilled all of my movements, uh, the way they had set up a Potemkin village for me to look at. And again, they sought to have that page removed and put quite a lot of pressure on. Uh, I went to Laos and uh, even a senior government official tried to get me sanctioned by the UN hierarchy because she felt that I was being overly critical of what the UN was doing. Uh, I think it is just very important to stand up to those sort of pressures, but of course you have to be confident that you're on firm ground and that the criticisms you're making are fully justified. It must have taken a lot of bravery to stand up to that and really maintain that independence. But I'm also curious to hear, you know, during your tenure as Special Rapporteur, did you find any governments or institutions more responsive to your message um, and wanting to better their policies um, in, in response to, to your work? Uh, I think, I mean, one of the most uh, interesting but frustrating experiences I had was a visit to Malaysia uh, less than a year ago, 
Um, Malaysia is a country that had experienced a big revival because of a change of government after many years. Um, and when I went there, uh, many actors said to me, look, the poverty rate in Malaysia is ridiculous. It's completely unrealistic. Uh, and indeed, it was 0.4%. And so I decided that because it hadn't been updated for a long time, the government didn't take it seriously. But they did nonetheless proclaim that it was a genuine rate, that they had virtually eliminated poverty. And when I asked about lots of policies uh, and how they were tailored in relation to the extremely poor, they would say, well, we don't have poor people, so we don't have to do it. Uh, <laughs> when, my, when my report came out, which was very critical, the uh, economics minister immediately dismissed it as total nonsense. But within a few hours, the then Prime Minister, Mahathir Mohamed, had come out and said, well, you know, if what the UN says is right, we're going to have to change the poverty line. And they pretty much committed at senior government levels to do that. Sadly, when Mohamed was thrown out just a couple of months ago, the government seems to have reverted to its old position that we don't have poverty alone in the entire world. Fascinating to, to get a behind the scenes play by play of, of that story. Um, staying there on your on your time as, as special rapporteur and really thinking about, you know, the important document of our era being the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted at the birth of the UN um, and many other multilateral institutions, the issues of inequality and human rights, one would naturally think that they are you know, inextricably tied, but yet we often see them as two separate discourses. And I wonder for you, how do you, um, how would you explain the links between the two? What do you see as the importance of linking the two? This issue, at least in the human rights area, has been dominated for the past couple of years by an analysis by Samuel Moyne, uh, who wrote a book called Not Enough. And Moyne um, rightly draws attention to the fact that the human rights community has not paid nearly enough attention to the issue of inequality. Uh, he wrongly suggests that that's because they haven't uh, pushed uh, a benchmark of complete equality, which is uh, ridiculous and quite unhelpful. But I think what we're seeing now is that the human rights community is starting to recognize uh, the importance of addressing uh, equality, starting to look at the importance of redistribution, uh, which previously they didn't want to address. And what we're starting to see on the other side is that advocates for economic progress uh, and so on are also realizing that without rights, this is not going to happen. So if you look at the situation of poor people in so many countries around the world, it's not simply a deprivation of material resources. It is that, it is that they are excluded from the political system. They are victimized by the justice system. If there's torture, it's going to overwhelmingly affect the poor. If there's violence against women, it's the same story. And I think the coming together of these two sets of issues is an important development over the last few years. I completely agree. And I think, you know, even in, in the work that we're all doing, we're also seeing the importance of linking the two and trying to find better ways um, of shaping this narrative. So we started the interview, Philip, by talking about the link between inequality and the pandemic as it's playing out. 
Um, and at the same time, you know, a lot of people are, are talking about recovery and you alluded to the austerity that is to come uh, and the big fears that you have of that. Uh, we share your fears. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of hope, I suppose, in thinking about is there a way to, to create a better world after this? Um, so I wonder what good do you think can possibly come out of this painful pandemic and, and where do you find hope in the fight against inequality right now? Well, uh, in some ways, of course, the pandemic has been, as people have said, uh, something of a trial run for climate change. Um, we're seeing the vulnerability of particular groups, particularly the poor. Uh, we're realizing one way or another, we are all in it together. We're seeing the role of science. We're seeing the relationship that we have with nature, which we have to address in both contexts. And I guess there's just a much broader awareness of the need for deeper structural changes. I think the important thing is not to underestimate the resistance to uh, any sort of deep change, but that also means that those of us who are trying to achieve progress, to reduce inequality, to promote respect for human rights, have to grasp the opportunity uh, and have to make a much bigger effort to come together, in, uh, to get out of our silos and to work towards creating, taking the opportunity created by coronavirus to create a more equal and sustainable society and to be able to convince a broader array of people that this really is in their interests. This is not a special interest thing. This is the future of the globe and it requires a social justice driven approach. You've managed somehow to, to end us there on a hopeful note. Thank you very much, Philip, for joining us on Equals. It really is an honor. Absolutely. And and I a lot of work ahead, but but hopefully there will be moments to bring together this opportunity and, and keep up the good fight. Thanks, pleasure speaking with you. Ah, some great stuff in there, right? About human rights and about what coronavirus means for equality, you know, right now in the heat of the pandemic, but also what's to come. Uh, what did you think? I completely agree. I loved his answer about social Darwinism. I feel it tells us a lot about how the richest see themselves. But Nadia, the most memorable thing for me from that interview is what Philip said about the importance of listening. Something that seems so simple is actually so political. True, and that's a really good way of putting it, Nabil. Um, unfortunately, many politicians would probably not even consider it part of their job description to listen to communities talking about their lives and about how policies and actions impact people on the ground. Yeah, I mean, just thinking out loud that the most listening, some of the neoliberal governments that we have, and probably many more governments, the most listening they do is to get some expensive PR firm, get them to run some focus group exercises, you know, shape the latest three word slogan. <laughs> That's not really listening, is it? It's not. And, and even if they did that, they'd probably expect a huge amount of gratitude for engaging the citizens, as they say. You know, there's listening to and they're, they're standing with. Um, and Alston did a really beautiful job of standing in solidarity with people. And we heard some of those stories. Um, come out in the interview. But we see human rights defenders and community activists defending their lands and resources, standing up to power every day and risking their lives. 
facing harsh retaliation from those in power and someone like Alston standing in solidarity and giving political cover to those communities in a world of closing civic space, it's hugely important. Totally. And there's something I learned there that about it's about fearlessness to be able to stand up to the powerful and those who don't like what you have to say. But you get that fearlessness by doing the listening, doing the hard groundwork, getting the evidence to then be able to stand in a position of strength, you know? True. But I mean, I don't know if it's just even having the evidence. It's it's the UN system behind him also that gave him the credibility to do that work also, right? So although he has an independent mandate and and definitely from what I could tell acted very independently in his tenure, um, it is that UN system behind him that gave him the platform through which to make these stories and voices heard. Yeah, and you know what? For, for all the criticism sometimes it gets, it's such a credit to the United Nations that it holds these positions that can push back against governments. True, and and although Alston has finished his term as Special Rapporteur for Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, I'm, I'm sure we'll continue to see him and his work in his role in academia at New York University, which continues. Yeah, totally. I don't think Philip knows how to rest, really, in the fight for human rights. <laughs> and I've got to hand it to you, Nadia, that after this interview, I do see why you would want to become a UN Special Rapporteur one day. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you have come around. So let's convince them to let us share the position one day. I'm definitely game for a job share. So look, that's that's all for today, folks. Thank you very, very much for joining us. This is the latest episode in our Inequality Virus mini-series. We've got some fantastic episodes ahead. We've got the likes of Derek Hamilton, Professor Derek Hamilton. He's an economist who's making waves in the United States and elsewhere. He's been credited with shaping some of the biggest economic ideas going. We're going to be speaking to him about racial justice and inequality. We're going to be speaking to some fantastic activists. All that to come. Looking forward to it. And and please do follow us, interact with us on Twitter at Equals Hope or drop us an email at equals at Oxfam.org. And stay healthy out there, friends. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.